out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family and is sponsored in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Sad Men for Lonely Women, because at some point or another, somebody stopped loving you. That's right. Welcome back, dear listener. We are here to talk about the movies you'll never discuss in a film studies course, even though this week and this month we're doing a special marathon of anti-trash here at the Good Trash Genre Cast. This week's film is a little Swedish film called Force Majeure, where we study the majestic moose and the lovely fjords of Norway. And uh, no, that's probably not the case at all. No, not at all. No. The lakes are lovely this year. <laughs> 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 Those responsible for the subtitles have been sacked. And we are so glad to be <laughs> doing this show with you all, um, dear listener. Let's do some introductions of the voices speaking to your brain through your generic MP3 playing device. I go to my left, ma'am. Tell us who you are. My name is Alexandra Bohannon, and I feel like we should get Adam Savage in here to see if you can or cannot actually run in ski boots. I think that's important to do. Thank you very much for that. To the left of her, if you would, sir. Hi, my name is Caleb Masters, and I'm a bloody victim of my own instincts correct i know that this to be the case this is an intervention sir to my right sir who are you my name is dalton stewart and dustin if a drunk came in here wielding a bottle and tried to attack you i'd hit him i'm not a violent man but that's my instinct excellent excellent my name is dustin sells and i am so glad to be talking force majeure with you all all right major 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 you say major sonia sort of force major I don't know. Uh, now, we got a warning, dear listener. This is not a review show. It's an analysis show, and that means that we will be spoiling this film. However, we will give you a brief break, a safe time, a safe place in which you could you know, have a family argument or not be spoiled by the film. And that safe place will be the first part of the uh, show in which we have a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema and then our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews. After that point, we get down to business. We cue that with a little bit of music so you know, and uh, then the spoilage will happen, and we will find out whether or not not that moose will be able to escape that polar bear or not and so very very exciting times for us all let's begin now with that synopsis from the voice to cinema if you would sir a family on a ski holiday in the french alps find themselves staring down an avalanche during lunch one day in the aftermath their dynamic has been shaken to its core with a question mark hanging over their patriarch in particular Yes, indeedy. Uh, so we're going to just talk about this. Uh, quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, just a thing you might like or not like about the film, and just your initial reactions. I go to you first, Mr. Caleb Masters. How do you react, sir? Well, Force Majeure, Majeure is a really interesting film, and it takes uh, the you know family drama and communication breakdown that we you know have seen a lot in a lot of other portrayed in a lot of other films and it attempts to turn it into a punchline uh, to show kind of how silly a lot of it is without without but without diffusing like the weight of the drama uh, and I'm not I'm not entirely sure it succeeds but I can't deny how accurate it is in the depiction of said uh, trials and tribulations of uh, being both uh, a couple and also a family I think the acting is top notch with my personal favorite being a uh, Christopher, oh boy, uh, Tomas. No, not Tomas. Harry. No, no. Yeah. Uh, see, 
I, I can't remember. Bearded Ginger? Yes, Bearded Ginger. Yeah. AKA Tormund Giants Bane from yeah, Game yeah. of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. It's, guys, we're not going to be saying the actors' names on here. Let's be real. These are all Swedish and Norwegian actors. Saying their names would be uh, akin to gargling sand uh, while trying to sing. Yeah. So Redbeard Giants Bane uh, is the uh, my favorite little bit because he's probably the most. Uh, He's pretty hysterical, honestly, as the comedic relief. And thank God he's in this movie or I might have quit. <laughs> uh, he's the only really sensible character in the film, and I appreciate uh, the use of him as an avatar. Um, the film features uh, some beautiful visuals, and it really earns my respect as being a mostly well-told yarn about something that uh, – telling a story about something in a way that fil- other films in Hollywood uh, don't talk about. And then that is like family drama and family breakdown and crises. Thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what's your initial reaction? Well, I, I was the picker of the film. This was my host pick, and I had never seen Force Majeure, actually. Uh, I'd just been meaning to get around to it for a really long time and heard some good things about it um, back when it was, uh, you know, the year it actually was released. Um, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Uh, Caleb, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think anybody in this movie is sensible. Uh, no one can let anything go, but I think that really speaks to how people are. Uh, I, I think we all have a very difficult time letting things go sometimes. I know that I do. Um, and, and I think what this film speaks to is how, a, regardless of how one incident can really reshape um, people's understandings of one another. Caleb, I, you, you mentioned that um, Tormund Giantsbane, um, whose character name I can't remember now for the life of me, and I know I can't pronounce his name as, a, as an actor, uh, Matt's. Uh, is his name in the in the film? I think everyone's very funny. I think this film is very funny in the way that the British Office is funny, where it's just you're. It's so just that cringeworthy humor. Uh, my one of my favorite scenes in the entire film um, is they they have dinner with um, uh, Ebba's friend and the uh, American that Ebba's friend has picked up, um, and it's just the most painful, painful man. I loved it. I love. This movie, I think it's hysterical. I think it's insightful. I think it is moving. I think it is painful, uh, and I think it's really interesting. And when we sat down to do a month of anti trash, and I knew that I was going to have a host pick this month, I want to do something. You know, we we did Holy Mountain, we did Brazil, we did the the artsy, abstract, not saying lots of things without ever saying anything clearly. I wanted to do the other kind of uh, arty film, which is just so lived in and painfully real in terms of the emotions that are depicted. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Ms. Alexandra Bohannon, what do you say? Yeah, this film, I mean, echoing what everyone else said, it's it's definitely high quality. The the colors and, and, the, and the textures, I, I love things shot on snowy hilltop mountains. I mean, to be fair, like that's that's some of my favorite sequences from like, James Bond is seeing the cinematography of like whenever someone's shooting on a mountain or ski slope and whenever we get that in force majeure with like the colors of the parkas and and then all the contrast I mean it's really beautiful it's visually stunning um I feel like all of the performances of the actors were high quality um this is a good film it's just not for me and I think that's kind of uh echoing what Caleb and I have both said um it just kind of hits a little too close home home for me to be really enjoyable I don't I'm not really a particular fan of the kind of office British office humor where you just like want to uh peel your soul out of your body uh, after watching it for too long um that's just not my wheelhouse of humor either so I mean 
I didn't really pick up on a lot of the comedic beats if there were any in in this film. And yeah, everyone was pretty ridiculous. So I think it's a good film. It's just, it's not my thing. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. I like the film very much. Uh, also, I do think it's beautifully shot. I think there's some formalistic decisions that, that are made by the director that are really pretty brilliant. I think all the performances are spot on. I think the story itself is interesting and uh, at times, you know, very, very um, skin-crawly absurdist. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's got all those sort of things going on for it. But it, there is a sense in which it's not a very pleasant watch. I do worry that it might be um, somewhat ideologically troubled, and we'll talk more about that later. And that sort of does affect my appreciation of the film. But we'll, 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 we'll get into that, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get into that. But that, that, that's sort of, I, because of the ambiguity therein, that makes me wonder if it's troubled or if it's just trying to be ambiguous. And I'm not quite sure which of those things it is. And again, more on that anon. I come down on the, the latter, but yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, though. I like the movie. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't say to anyone not to watch it. But that being said, I don't know that you'd watch it twice. Uh, because, yeah, it's kind of painful in a great many ways. So there you go dear listener, uh, for all that. Now you know where we're all coming from and what we're thinking. I think now it may be time to get down to business. That's right, dear listener, and the analysis is the business that we do here at the Good Trash Honorcast. We're so excited to bring some to this film. We're going to do sort of a roundtable format right now. We've got a handful of things that are sort of kicking around in terms of the film, and I'm just going to say a word and uh, for the first question or the first uh, piece of ideology for our discussion and just say, what is this film saying about gender? Go. I, I think it is saying less about gender specifically um, and more about the expectations that society sets forth for people about how they're supposed to feel about certain things and what they're supposed to think about certain things. And obviously, gender enters into that a lot. Uh, but I think, and again, for me, the, this is just how I watched it. Um, it was as much gender as it was um preconceived notions about how people are supposed to behave. Now, again, gender, in, gender enters into that, uh, and you know, there are these conversations about what a man is supposed to do, and really we get that from Matt's and his girlfriend, uh, Fanny. Uh, Matt's, the, 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 the uh, relationship between uh, everyone's never plainly stated, but it seems like uh, Matt's and uh, Tomas are friends from work. Or they're, like, like, they're like old friends. Like school buddies, yeah, and Fanny's his new young girlfriend. Uh, and I think the the scenes we have of the two of them alone are the most that gender really enters explicitly into the conversation. Um, now, what I think it's saying is, be it along gender lines or be it along familial lines, everyone is taught that they are going to behave a certain way in a certain situation. And I think what the film is saying is, no, you re- really never do know how you're going to behave if you get really rattled. Uh, and that doesn't make you a bad person. Um, it, but it also doesn't fault anyone for for being mad at you. You know, people are going to be mad at your reactions to things, even if really there's nothing wrong with the way you reacted. Um, even if the way you reacted is perfectly natural and human, that doesn't absolve you from guilt, if that makes sense. And I think that's, uh, to my mind, that's what force majeure seems to be getting, it at, getting at, um, is 
what is expected of you is not always going to be what you want to do. Um, but just because it's not what you want to do, don't expect people to not be mad at you. Yeah, well, I, I actually think the film is... The, the film is demonstrating gender roles. Uh, you're the father. You're mm-hmm. with your kids. Tragedy forsakes you were expected to protect them because you're a man. Uh, and that is that is the expectation. The expectation in the... Uh, Dalton, I guess I'm a little confused. What is the difference between your expectations and your gender roles? Because those are pretty much the same thing. What society s- s- expects out of a man in society is his gender role. It is a, a role that is assigned to him. Well, so no, I, and I'm not saying the expectation... The, the question of societal expectations does fall along gender lines a lot, and frequently in this movie it does fall along gender lines. I'm just saying the conversation seems to be geared more towards um, expectations in general uh, as opposed to gender specifically, if that makes sense. I'll, I, I get what you're uh, yeah. saying, too, and I think, and I, I don't think anyone is more correct than the other. I'm just saying, for me, that was what I keyed in on. But I think gender's definitely a focus there, and especially you know this conversation we get at... Uh, Matt's and Fanny come to the room, and everybody has a nice uh, pizza night, uh, and then it becomes not a nice evening because Ebba's like, nope, I want to fucking talk about this. We're going to talk about it, and it gets weird fast. And I think that that scene, yeah, gender is from that moment until the, it, we get the inter card of Ski Day 5 or whatever. That's really what that whole sequence of the film is about. But I think they're... And gender enters into it in other ways. You know, uh, Ebba has this friend who's um, in this open relationship, and there's a lot of conversation about being a mother uh, and being what your expectations as a mother are. Um, I still fall, I, I still think all, everything you're saying that plays in the gender roles. If you're a mother, you're assigned the female gender role, which is to be maternal and to be loyal to your mate. Um, there's more, And there's more pressure from society in a patriarchal society on a woman to do that um, versus men who are get away with cheating a lot. I mean, just in general, it's, it's not as, well, it's, tomorrow- little, it's more, it's more socially acceptable, although not, not exactly, you know, it's still frowned upon, but, mm. um, I guess what I'm getting at though, is, uh, the, the reaction he has is very much what you would, uh, the film is showing us mm-hmm. what you would expect a man to do, which is be in denial. Well, of course he's not going to own up to his mistake. Yeah. So he goes into denial. So instead of confront the fact that he abandoned his kids, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Which and I think it, is oh, so fascinating and really heartbreaking uh, to watch is like his, everything he, everything every character goes through is so real and I connected to a lot of it. But really, I, Tomas and his reaction to not being willing to admit what happened is is really troubling uh, and and it speaks to like a this this self denial that's really that's real though i mean it's very a, real a very yeah na- re- reaction a lot of people have they're going to rewrite the truth in their head yeah. and i think a lot of that comes from the patri the, the patriarchy in that society which is that that again you were supposed to take care of your kids so you'll spin the narrative in your head that of course i tried to defend yeah. my kids then you have the wife who is again being extremely like uh, stereotypically naggy I'm not saying her reaction was was wrongful, but I think what the movie does is it demonstrates these reactions to these situations that are actually pretty what you'd kind of expect from this sort of incident. Uh, but then it unpacks them and unfolds them and has the, at, at the film, we are watching this and seeing how they're actually reacting to their own reactions. And the film, I, I think by the end, of the end of the film, and I don't know, Dustin talked about maybe the film being a little confused, but I thought it was really breaking down and criticizing the idea of gender roles where they both come to the realization that just shit happens. It doesn't matter what gender you are. We're all going to react differently as human beings. Because I felt like everyone felt pretty foolish by the end of the film, honestly. 
I feel that this film also, to kind of correlate with all of what you guys are saying, um, the language of the film, the language of the film, I think, is actually showing us these things in a visual way, not just in a in a storytelling way. Um, and this is also de- demonstrated through the use of color because we're in this really stark landscape, right? And, um, you know, the first use of color is kind of keyed in on the poster. Um, if you've seen the poster, it says force majeure. One, one, uh, force, I think, is pink. Uh, majeure, I think, is blue. Um, and then the family, for the rest of the film, in their ski park mm-hmm. as wears major, uh, majorly um blue parkas for the father and the son pink parkas for the the mother and the daughter now keeping the your eye on the colors throughout the film is really important to see where the the characters are emotionally because as pink and blue i know they had a history of being flip-flopped and pink used to be a boy's color blue whatever but from a 21st century point of view um blue being you know the stereotypical boys color Mm -hmm. and all of the associated things with that. Mm -hmm. And then pink being the stereotypical female color with all the things associated with that, that really also correlates to gender roles. And whenever you see them wearing their, their parkas and whenever you see them wearing these colors, you can see they're all keying into and playing into these gender roles. That's when a lot of the, you know, a lot of the um, stereotypical female, like, oh, I, I'm just going to be, you know, taking the the brunt of this thing. I'm going to be really taking care of the kids, blah, blah, blah. You know, whenever he is at his most independent, whenever she is at her most maternal, they wear these colors. Now, one thing that's really interesting is so when we get to the first scene, not the first scene, one of the scenes with uh, Ebba and her friend in the bar, mm-hmm. she's wearing this like pink shirt. Her friend is wearing a tan shirt. The, this friend never wears anything that is a, a quote gendered color. She mm. wears like basically earth these tones. earth tones neutrals, um, and that kind of goes along with what she's saying. You know, she actually says in in, in the film, you know, you don't need to wrap your self esteem around being a mother and being a caregiver. That's that's something you know you you shouldn't have to do. Um, you know, which is her questioning um, Ebba buying into this specific gender role. Um, and then by the end of the film, there's, you know, a lot of this interplay throughout, you know, whenever she is starting to question Ebba, her own general, she wears like this kind of tan parka and going out on the slopes by herself. Um, but by the end of the film, when they're all walking with the bus and the bus thing was kind of weird, I, I didn't really know what quite was going on there. I thought that the final climactic scene was everyone was just going to go bus over the cliff. Actually, <laughs> um, I was just like, so this is how they resolve things. Everyone is okay. And then the f- random drama of the bus goes off the cliff. Well, there's a moment earlier in the film where there's a drone and I really thought it was going to be aliens. And that was a moment again where I thought aliens were going to finally show up. Right. But Dustin, right. I did, wish it had been aliens, my it, friend. It, I yeah. wanted it so bad. It did not happen. But th- that final sequence when they're walking down the mountain, um, everyone's wearing kind of earth tones. And uh, then you all, but then you see um, Redbeard's girlfriend. She's kind of, she's wearing earth tones, but you can see a little bit of pink. She's wearing this kind of, this tank top underneath. So, you know, I know they've been having all these fights about things of that nature. Um, and so maybe she's buying into those for the first time, um, kind of subverting 
the discussions they had had earlier, et cetera. I didn't even, yeah, that's amazing, Alex. I didn't key into that at all. Yeah, um, it's it's really, really fascinating. And it's not perfect. It's not a perfect science, but it, it tends to overwhelmingly be. I that. mean, that, and that's certainly, I mean, that, that seems so specific that it, it couldn't not be a choice. So, and again, I don't think that gender roles don't in, enter into the film at all, Caleb. I, I want to point that out. I think it, they definitely do. Well, I think something that might tie into that a little bit is this idea of gender as performance. That, that, that the yeah, film absolutely. is fundamentally about the failure to perform mm-hmm. uh, according to a gender role because Tomas um, fails to be heroic and, you know, I don't know, fight the avalanche or, you know, or, just or books. Just, yeah. You know, just, you know, I'm scared I run away, you know, which is a thing a lot of people might do. And, I, you know, to uh, the points that are made throughout the film, a lot of people might do that, and it's not really because they're brave or cowardly or whatever. It's just you know, there's an avalanche coming, and uh, gut, in, gut instinct, <laughs> li- lizard brain well, starts and happening. Yeah. And that's exactly what I was saying. Like just because, and that's the thing, he didn't do anything wrong, right? But at the same time, that doesn't absolve him of looking like a dickhead, but the reason, which is exactly what he looks right. like. The reason why he doesn't own up to it, though, is because it doesn't look like a proper John Wayne sort of performance yeah. of masculinity. Because he fails to perform, and then he fails to admit his failure, because that looks weak and that mm-hmm. looks you know, broken. And, and there's yeah. a later scene where he's making some confessions and having a, a diff- difficult conversation, mm-hmm. and he starts crying at one point, and she says, you're just acting. I love that moment so much. You're just, you're just, She's I, like, you're not crying. He's like, okay, fine. I'm not. <laughs> That's right. so funny. That, but he's pretending towards so this sort of funny. weakness, right? And, and, and then there is a sort of breakdown that happens. And she, to my mind, in her performance, she seems to despise him, not just for what he said, but for the sort of emotional, you know, lumpy, gooey mess that he turns himself into as a result. That that he, she really does despise him for that. And the film ends after the bus scene, and he borrows a cigarette from the, the guy walking with him, where he's sort of trying to find some way to be the Marlboro Man. That, that, that it is sort of this um, trying to find his way back into mm-hmm. proper male performativity. Yes, son, I do smoke. Right, you know? Yeah. And, and, I, and so that's, that's where it finds itself to be sort of confused. And I, I, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think um, in terms of the conclusion of their relationship, if they end up together or not, because I feel like they don't, and it's because of like the inner titles. If you looked at the text of the inner titles, it, it mostly it goes like ski day one, ski day two. The last inner title says final day, and so I'm thinking their relationship actually doesn't make it off the mountain. I think they maybe that's me being pessimistic, but well, I, that's perfect actually because that does tie into the next thing I want to ask is is sort of interpretation of a particular scene and how I think how we interpret this scene mm-hmm. is going to determine how we're going to handle the rest and that is the Eva rescue scene when they go skiing in the fog. Mm-hmm. Question: Is she really lost? No, not at all. No, is I don't it, think so. Not it, a chance. Is it for Thomas? Is it for the kids? I, what it's, a, are, it's, a, it's a performance for the kids. It is a performance, and, and, and it's a it's a fit of it's a it's a bit of a fulfillment for Emma. I, I'm I'm wondering if she even knows why she did it, but I do, I mean I don't think she was lost for sure. I think she I mean, intentionally. I, did I that. think she. I don't know if she wanted, was she testing Tom. That's the thing. I, that's Absolutely, exactly that's the question. Yeah. Was she testing him? Was he? And that's the real question. Yeah. Did Did she consciously know she had? Did she consciously make a choice to test him? Um, yeah, I, I, that's, I think so. I, I mean, I don't know. I given her how she how she had uh, her character throughout the rest of the film, I, I felt like that's what it was building up to. And the symmetry of it with the him running away during the thing, and then she's like, "I'm going to do the same thing and see how this douchebag reacts." Like, 
as a person who identifies as female myself, like I have done shit like that. I have done shit like where you test someone sure. do using weird mm-hmm. things and it's shitty and stupid and mm-hmm. you shouldn't do it, but that doesn't make me a bad person by doing so. And I know I've been tested by my significant other. And that's what I wonder was, you know, is this I'm testing Thomas to see what he's going to do again or I'm giving him a chance to make him for him to feel better about himself. Right, which which is which is a possibility. And again, it could purely be an act just for the sake of the kids because the kids are very fearful that they're going to get a divorce because they're fighting. And yeah. and, and Harry in fact voices that. You yeah, know. and you both have mentioned a couple of people have mentioned both on air and off air that they hate these kids. I feel awful for these kids, these poor kids. Oh no. I mean, by the end of the I was pretty salty at the beginning of them because they were kind of acting out, but um they don't want to no, be by there. The end they don't they didn't want to go skiing. No, I mean by the end of it, it, yeah, they're it's fine, but and I understand, you know. There is brilliantly though in that scene when when Tomas finally comes down and out of the fog and sort of revealed to be carrying, you know, in a, in a, in a very traditional sort of Douglas Sirk, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of moment where uh, he carrying, you know, like uh, Errol Flynn, mm-hmm. this, this woman uh, down there. There's this music cue, bum ba da ba. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it, that's it's so cheeseball. I I've laughed, and I, I really, I guess, I but that does sort of determine what's going to happen with them next. Mm-hmm. Is is how you handle that particular scene, which I, I mean, she's clearly not injured. She's no. possibly lost. And she's very likely not. And why the devil would you leave your skis? Well, let's talk a little bit about aesthetics now uh, with the film. Well, actually, before we get to that, I have a, I have a, I have a different question uh, uh, regarding truth, regarding mm-hmm. what happened. Because basically, we are given, I think, rightly, an objective shot of the avalanche coming. I was thinking about this, too. And I, I think the film intends us to understand it to be objective, right? That That, that what we saw is what happened. And... Though we saw that, we don't see anything from the point of view. There are no POV shots uh, in the film, aside from one from uh, Redbeard's uh, go cam on -hmm. his head, and then one POV shot of a drone. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're very, very short shots. Everything else is um, outside at static cameras. Uh, They don't ever move. The the characters are always um, rendered immobile. There are a couple moments when the camera moves, but it moves in such a way that it moves along with them as they're going up lifts, again, to sort of freeze them and make every every character quite static. Even when Ebba's going down the mountain, the camera moves in such a way that it seems like she's almost not moving, right? And all this is happening. And so we're very much focused on the heads of the characters. And Thomas is making this argument, that's your perspective. That's your perception of what happened. And then the, the big moment of re- revelation where he sort of recognizes, okay, I did run away, is because he had me carrying his iPhone, mm-hmm. which is a shot we don't see, um, and was recording the avalanche as it came. So the question I guess I want to ask is, what is this film saying about the way things happen versus the way things we, we remember them? And perhaps is it saying anything about cinema regarding that as well? You know, there were several points um, early in the film where I thought, I wish they hadn't shown us what had happened. I wish they had left it ambiguous. And then about halfway through the film, I was like, no, I'm really glad they showed it. Uh, as the film itself got more ambiguous, I, w- I was really glad for the f- the kind of the first half of the film being very objective, and, and there is one truth, and we know it, the audience, regardless of what the other characters are admitting or what they know, we know. And then about halfway through the film, things get much more ambiguous, and I was glad for the choice to be very objective in the beginning. But I, th- I thought it was... I mean, I think other films would have um, made the choice to not show us what happened. They would have shown the avalanche coming and then cut to black, and we would have heard it but not seen it. Um, 
and I, I don't think that would have been an, a bad choice to make, but I certainly am glad they, they chose to do what they did. Well, I think it's just highlighting the difference between objective truth and subjective truth, and I'm really glad they showed us that as well. And I'm really glad they had the scene later in the whole, you know, marital counseling, whatever you want to call that, dinner, pizza time, whatever, uh, scene uh, where they where they were like recounting it because that's the difference between objective. Now, because we had the because the filmmakers decided to show us what actually happened, we know that's what happened because that's you know. It's a reliable narrator, I guess. So it's a, it's a you know it's a, a third party. You're you're witnessing it from God's eye, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so we know that's what happened. But what's more important is how the, the the characters react to it, and that's the difference between objective and subjective. the The truth is that that happened. Now the the subjective truth is how are they going to decide what happened, and that's the truth they're going to have to live with. Whether or not that's the whether or not, and I guess we don't really fully get the answer to that question. I mean, he he does admit to himself, but is that the story he decides to settle on? You know what I mean? Because even 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 when you 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 admit to yourself that you made a mistake, it doesn't mean that's the way you're going to remember it, or how your kids are going to remember it, or your family going to. Remember well, right it. after the avalanche itself happens, they have that conversation in the hallway about like, okay, avalanche happened, everybody's fine. That's the version we'll go with. Yeah, it's like, of course, that's a version you want to go with because it's a version where you didn't do anything wrong. Right. So, uh, and I think I think the to, to your question about cinema, though, that is the beauty of cinema. Uh, now there. There are a lot of times, though, we do get we are seeing things from the, the perspective of an unreliable narrator, but we don't know if it's true or not. And that is cinema showing us subjective truth. Uh, we talked about in our Hate Flight review uh, we did a few weeks ago. There's a particular scene where you see flashbacks; they don't know whether they occurred. That is film focusing on subjective truth. The benefit of film is depending on who the narrator is or who the storyteller is. We get to see one or the other, and I think that is a real benefit. That we don't even get from, depending on even a lot of books, you're limited to one perspective, depending on how they decide to tell, to tell a story. So, power of cinema, I think. And well, and another critique going further with the uh, the concept of cinema telling truths is even if the film you're, you're watching is telling, like, you, it is agreed upon that this film is a, telling objective truths from a, a reliable narrator. Um, but you as a viewer are still bringing your subjective truth to the film. Absolutely. So whenever I was watching this film, I was having a conversation in my brain and head and emotions and anxieties about my parents' divorce because it, I mean, not to dump baggage, it just, it really mimics a lot of the stuff that happened during that time for me. Um, and so whenever I'm bringing this this truth to um, what I feel is my truth to this, the subject of the film, I'm going to be reading this film in a way that may or may not be, you know, someone else's reading because of the things I bring to the text of the film. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it seems to me that the film does both things and both sides of the debate about cinema. Does it tell the truth at 24 frames a second or does it lie at 24 frames a second? And I think it does both. We see the truth, I think, when we see that objective shot. I think Tomas is confronted with the truth via images, via moving images on his iPhone, and has to sort of reckon with that. And then the second half of the film, or the last third of it, is very ambiguously shot. There's a lot of uh, elision, there's a lot of ellipses in, in the way that it's edited. And therefore, it... It hides the truth from us, mm-hmm. I mean, which is what deception really is. Absolutely. Well, and we can't quite see out the front windshield of the bus. Right. So we can't really see if what's happening is really all that dangerous or just it feels dangerous because you're in a bus and you can't see what's happening. Right. And so it, that, that to me is really fascinating, you know, as to what happened and what happens and who we are and uh, what we are. 
as human beings. I think the best place for us to end this this uh, roundtable analysis is to just read the definition of force majeure, um, which some people might not know. Um, and I'm just going to read straight from Wikipedia because somebody took the time to write this out uh, better than I'd cared to. It is a chance occurrence, unavoidable accident, is a common clause in contracts that essentially frees both parties from liability or obligation when an extraordinary event or circumstance beyond the control of the parties prevents one or both parties from fulfilling their obligations under the contract. Yeah, they're so getting divorced, guys. Sorry, there's no way around it. (laughs) Very, very very likely. I don't know. Dear listener, we'd love to hear your reactions and your verdicts about that sort of thing and uh, your feedback to our analysis. We're going to move into our next section, but before we do that, Here's a word from our sponsors. Good Trash Genrecast is brought to you in part by SadMenForLonelyWomen.com. Have you ever found yourself yearning for the glorious moments of your past? I know I have. But we can't offer that to you. But we can give you the next best thing. The Beginner's Guide to Loneliness. A collection of the most shared, viewed, and favorited articles from sadmenforlonelywomen.com. The Beginner's Guide to Loneliness is available over at Amazon.com. Pick up your copy today. We now come to a part of the show where we render a verdict, and we relegate this sh- this film to the shelf or to the trash. And so I'm very excited to hear because we have a pretty divided table today. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Show for trash, and what is your else or instead recommendation based on that? I think this this film is uh, very shelfable. I, I think it's a great introduction to world cinema, if that's not something you've seen a lot of. I, I think it's uh, a very interesting film. And frankly, uh, of the three movies we've watched so far for this month of anti-trash, it's the one I've liked the most. Um, and again, I think that speaks more to I enjoy the anti-trash that forces you into the concrete, uh, almost too real uh, to look at things as opposed to the so not real that it, I, I, I prefer concrete to abstract, I think, a lot of the time. Um, so that's that's for me where this film goes. It is concrete. It is hard to watch. It is funny. Um, and it is painful, and oftentimes it's both of those things at once. So it's very shelfable for me. Um, I'd recommend pairing it with uh, Blue Valentine, which is another film about relationships that's frankly too real <laughs> at, at points, um, but also a very interesting film and a very lovely film. Um, and I would also recommend you pair it with Rashomon. Um, nice. Yeah, because it's another film about the malleability of truth and about how your perceptions of, of an event can completely change people's reaction to you and to said event and as kurosawa says uh rashomon's fundamentally about ego and there's so yeah. much of that going on as well absolutely and yeah this and there's loads and loads of ego uh at work in force majeure thank you very much mr dalton stewart mr caleb masters what do you say show for trash and then else or instead yeah i'm gonna have to trash it mostly because i'm personally i'm never gonna see it again i think it's a really good movie i i really respect what it's doing and i i think it's worth people's time to watch but I mean, it's not one I'm going to go out of my way to recommend to people, honestly, uh, and it's not one that I care to rewatch, at least not any time in the near future. Uh, but that said, uh, you know, I'm still going to give it a, a rating of 17 red bearded bros out of a possible 20, uh, and I, I think uh, because I think it's still worth your time, but not a movie I, I'm going to push too hard. Uh, else, I'm going to go ahead and recommend uh, 
uh, The Tree of Life, which is a film about uh, fathers and sons, uh, the impact of parents, uh, the the relationship between uh, parents and their children uh, that gets uh, that really kind of struggles with that, this idea of, of truth and how we remember it as well. Uh, and how we remember it is going to impact whether or not that's what actually happened. That is what going to be what impacts our life more. Uh, I uh, Dalton took Blue Dip Valentine from me, so I'm also going to recommend The Babadook because that's a movie that's very much about the perception of truth. We and even us, the audience, don't know whether or not our narrator is reliable or not, even at the film's end. So I think there's something interesting to be said about that. Not to mention the kids in this movie really reminded me of the kid in The Babadook. I was like, oh man, driving me off a wall. And lastly. Those kids in this film are one day going to go back and watch Where the Wild Things Are because they've had a rough childhood. Therefore, I recommend you go watch Where the Wild Things Are. Nice. Thank you very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what are your reactions? Shelf or trash elsewhere instead? I I personally can't I can't shelf this film. I'm not going to watch it again. It's just too it's too painful for me to watch. Um, I would encourage you to watch it if you want. So I guess this is a technical trash, but I still acknowledge this film has a lot of merit and it's it is a good film. Um, I would also recommend in the same vein of films that made me uncomfortable, but I can acknowledge now that they're good films of the thing. Another, you know, snowy um, like a, a snowy chamber piece about tensions and who's telling the truth and uh, you know who is not. Um, yeah, that and a, a, aliens, so cool. Uh, and then I would also recommend if you want another truth uh, examination of marriage under a microscope on a national stage, of course, Gone Girl, um, which mm-hmm. was my uh, host pick for this past year. So those are my two uh, recommendations. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohannon. I am going to also say trash, uh, just because it's good, it's really great, but I'm not going to say shelf, because it's not phenomenal in any way. It doesn't really blow my hair back. Uh, that being said, it's very well made. I enjoy it. It's definitely good. It's not something I would say that's a pass, but it's just there's a lot of other good things out there to watch. It's my been re- happening with my host picks a lot lately, Arthur. Uh, I need you back on the mic, because you agree with me more often than these assholes. Well, uh, it's not personal, Dalton, I promise. It's just business. <laughs> and what I would recommend uh, for my insteads, I suppose, then, is I'd recommend The Shining. Uh, Ooh, be- yes. Be- because of aesthetic reasons. And, Love it. And, you know, murdering your family. Uh, there's something going on there as well. Um, as far as performing in a relationship and trying to figure out sort of roles, uh, The Duke of Burgundy, I think, nice. is an excellent um, yeah. pairing with this film, which may be uh, more positive in terms of relationship, but more negative in terms of their desire to keep on performing. And mm-hmm. so there's something going on there as well. And um, the producer, uh, Arthur, has mentioned uh, the film Phoenix just now into my ears. Uh, and I think Phoenix is actually a great selection there. There's there's this sort of dressing one up and playing roles again that goes on in that film. It's a great little German film from last year. And uh, so uh, do check that out as well. Dear listener, we'd love to hear what your thoughts are <laughs> and your recommendations and your reactions to what we've said so far. And we do that through those magical means that we all know as social media. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you know anything about those means by which those conversations could be held? Uh, Certainly, Dustin. You can find us on Facebook. You can keep up with all the Good Trash uh, Network family there uh, at facebook.com forward slash Good Trash Media. And we did have a little bit of feedback coming in this week on a couple things. Uh, In regards to Brazil, uh, Eric King uh, said it was a fantastic movie. Uh, Ashley Rains says she loves that movie. And then Jackson Curtin of sadmenforlonelywomen.com 
uh, said that uh, he had just recently watched Brazil and 12 Monkeys just a couple of days before that episode went live, and he's a big fan of that. And so that's some uh, really good feedback. And then we actually... Uh, somehow miss a piece of feedback over on Podbean, uh, which is monitored through Facebook comments. Uh, but Matt Funk uh, said, uh, in regards to Mad Max Fury Road, up on rewatching Mad Max Fury Road, I noticed something I completely missed the first time around. Uh, the movie is super positive towards the disabled. Minor spoilers, go watch the movie. Furiosa is missing most of her arm and has a prosthetic replacement. No dialogue calls attention to this. No scene's direction calls attention to this. We are never given backstory on how she came to her disability, probably because it's none of the other characters' business. Uh, she is never seen being hindered on screen by her lack of limbs. In fact, the first time she meets Max, it takes both Max and Nux uh, to successfully fight off a one-armed Furiosa while her prosthetic arm hangs from the war rig's mirror. Meanwhile, if this were any other movie, the camera would pan to the prosthetic arm on the first shot we saw a Furiosa. It would hamper her in the major plot points early in the movie. It would cause her pain, uh, physical and emotional, and the protagonist would ask for all of the backstory about her tragic injury. He'd probably give her a pep talk about how sometimes curses can be a blessing in disguise or something like that. Late in the movie, a major plot point would be solved by her having her disability in the first place. Man, I'm so glad Mad Max Fury Road exists. And Matt, we are very thankful for that uh, feedback. We are sorry it took so long to get to that, uh, but we greatly appreciate that dialogue and that comment. Although there is a, a point where she gets stabbed in the harness uh, that secures her prosthetic to her that uh, keeps her from being able to save Max from falling off of a moving vehicle. They're great points, but at the same time, I think there are moments where the film does call attention to it, but I guess it calls attention to it in ways that um, aren't obnoxious um, and don't uh, pander or condescend. Right on, right on. Thank you very much for that feedback. I am going to name my metal man, band Fighting Off One-Armed Furiosa. And uh, <laughs> want that album? <laughs> it, yeah, self-titled debut, um, and then right after that, we're going to call in it. We're going to do a fugitive-themed album and uh, talk about finding the one-armed man. But moving right along, <laughs> we have more feedback that we need to talk about and more reactions from our dear listeners because that's what we do this whole thing for. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything about uh, the social social media means by which the conversations could be held? I certainly do, Dustin. You can uh, follow the Good Trash Media Network on Twitter at Good Under score trash um a lot of feedback regarding caleb's live tweeting of the golden globes mostly talking about hell hell no uh, the martian is not a comedy um and a lot of back and forth about uh, the revenant and um whether it deserved its awards and um a, a little shit talk of the hollywood foreign press which is always um good but uh no nothing uh, nothing about shows nothing that uh, bears reading because it's all in uh pertaining to this past year's Golden Globes, which if you listen to this eight months from now, isn't going to matter. So we're just going to keep moving right along. But if you do want to follow us, once again, that is at good underscore trash. And if you want to follow the hosts individually, you can follow Dustin at Dustin underscore cells. You can follow myself at doll underscore stew. You can follow Alex at Alex V. But bro, <laughs> you can follow Alex at Alex V. Bro Hannon. Uh, you can follow Caleb at the unwieldy at big cal kenobi 91 and you can follow our wait 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 wait. do you think it means old (laughs) ben kenobi yes no yes thank you arthur and you can follow our uh, esteemed producer and co-host arthur gordon at rndtbl review that's at round table review but with uh, most of the vowels taken out
Excellent, excellent. I also want to remind you, dear listener, we can get feedback at this show and also all of our spinoff shows on iTunes. And those reviews, those starred reviews, are very, very helpful in getting our reach out there for you all so you can get more good trash goodness, not only to yourself, but to those around you, because we are all about littering the world with good trash. So please do that and also give feedback at the Podbean sites proper or also at Stitcher Internet Radio, uh, where these shows are also hosted so please please do that let's move on though the time is running out and i realize yes lenny i do realize lemmy did i say lenny you did. lemmy i realize it's time to play the game time to play the game time to play the game that's right, dear listener. This week's game is our favorite cinematic dads or television dads. That's right. Favorite cinematic and or television dads brought to you by Force Majeure. Force Majeure. Kind of a schlubby dad, but he's pretty memorable. Probably not your favorite uh, in a positive sense, although you might have a favorite in a very, very negative sense. I'm very excited to hear the selections made by the dear co-hosts. I ask you first, Miss Alexander Bohannon, who's your favorite cinematic and or television dads all right well for uh favorite cinematic dads i have a lester burnham which is kevin spacey's character from american beauty um he's a very memorable character uh (laughs) and uh really um an interesting pathetic but grows to be um you know not he's not a static character which is really enjoyable for me um another favorite dad of mine in television slash cinema kind of is uh george bluth and arrested development i have been doing a rewatch of arrested development because why the fuck not and uh he is a fantastically memorable dad um and last and certainly not least is my favorite cinematic dad of all time keith mars from veronica mars because that man is fantastic i always wish that he could be um you know my part-time real life dad because he's just a fantastic father and uh just Ah, it's such a good relationship, father-daughter relationship on screen. So those are my favorite TV dads. I like that very much, Miss Alexander Bohan and Mr. Dalton Stewart. Who are your picks? Well, uh, a film that I often defend but also don't love a whole lot, but I think it's beat up more than it should, um, Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Um, Russell Crowe as Kal-El and, um, oh my God. Kevin Costner. Thank you. Russell Crowe as Kal-El and Kevin Costner as John Kent, uh, the two best dads you could hope for. Um sitting next to my adopted father in the theater, uh, weeping like a small child when I saw it. I, I know I talk about this on the show a lot, but that's how I feel about it, and it bears mentioning because they're two wonderful and very memorable cinematic dads. I uh, also want to mention one of the worst movie dads, and that's Roy Neary from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, who fucks off and abandons his family to go live with the aliens. But uh, how can you not remember that? Don't ever forget. Don't ever, ever, ever forget uh, want to give a shout out to Henry Jones Sr., the incomparable Sean Connery, uh, as the only person who could possibly play Indiana Jones' dad, despite the fact that um, Sean Connery is only about 15 years older than Harrison Ford. Um, and last but certainly not least, uh, Lawrence Fishburne as Furious Styles, uh, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s character's dad in uh, Boys in the Hood. Um, such an awesome dad. He's so good in that movie. Have you guys seen Boys in the Hood? No. Not in years. Oh, man. Lawrence Fishburne is so good in that movie. No, I entirely forgot he was in the movie. That's how yeah, he's Yeah, he's fantastic and passes on some wonderful advice to his son, trying to uh, keep him on the straight and narrow in uh, south-central Los Angeles. 
Excellent, excellent. Thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Caleb Masters, who are your selections? Well, i got to go first off, uh, the, the best action hero ever who, who saved Christmas by rescuing his wife so he could get back to Christmas tenor, dinner, John McClane, yippee My man. Terrible father. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? He, 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 did you he see the sequels? The did you see the sequels? Terrible father. Hey, what are you talking about? He tried really hard. He tried really hard. Did you see the same sequels? The, 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 listen, the fourth one. The fourth one, he, he, he reconvened with his daughter. Okay, anyway. <laughs> anyway, he was really fun. Uh, I didn't say he was a good dad. He's a fun and memorable dad. Uh, secondly, uh, 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 debatably good dad, uh, Mr. Incredible, as voiced by Craig T. Nelson from The Incredibles, because, you know, he kind of lies to his entire family, so he can go off and play hero for a while. Nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, Dill Pintergast, or a.k.a. Stanley Tucci in EZA, because the parents in that movie are ridiculously hilarious. Stanley, amazing parents. Stanley, Stanley Tucci, great movie dad in general. Just in general. Stanley Tucci's amazing. Yeah, great dad. And last but not least, because you either uh, die a hero or live long enough to become a, yourself... Ah, damn it. Because you either uh, die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain, Atticus Finch and To Kill a Mockingbird, back when he was still an icon before to go set a Watchmen came out and wrecked my childhood vision of heroism. So, yeah, that's about all I got. Well, thank you for that very much, Mr. Caleb Masters. My first selection is uh, the actor himself, because he does this dad twice in television and in cinema, and that's one Martin Sheen. Um, yes. Martin Sheen, uh, he's a dad to Leo DiCaprio in a sense, in a surrogate sense. Also, he's got a son who's studying war at Notre Dame, uh, and he's just great. And also him as uh, Josiah Bartlett in uh, The West Wing. I, 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 w- I want him to be my dad. Yeah, Martin Sheen is... Uh... He's, he's a very, very sweet dad. Um, also, I'm going to pick uh, Kevin Costner um, as an actor, again, as a dad. I think him as a surrogate dad in a great film called A Perfect World. Uh, and also uh, his performance in uh, Man of Steel. That's a Clint Eastwood picture, right? A Perfect it is World? a Clint Eastwood yeah, picture, yeah, it yeah. is. I've heard that's really good. It's, it is wonderful. And yeah, him as John Kent. Ugh. Now, there, there, then what's great about him as John Kent is he's sort of flawed because uh, there's this weird message where he says, hide all your glory, hide all yeah. your, you know, which is, which is, you know, dads aren't perfect. But at the same time, there is this moment, and I have told this story to my co-host, but I have <sighs> never shared it on air, and I'm going to now uh, for the sake of this, um, where I had... I have daddy issues, let's just say. My dad and I, we, we've never been close, and I was raised by grandparents, and it's problematic. And so we're watching Man of Steel with my sons on the couch, and there's this moment where Clark says, you know, he's, he doesn't want to be an alien. I just want to be, can I just be your son? And uh, Kevin Costner makes us all cry man tears, pulls the boy up and says, but you are my son, and he cries. And I'm, I, I've got a little shoulder sob going, a little, little, little shoulder bounce sob going on. I'm sitting by my youngest son. And uh, he looks at me and realizes what I'm doing. And this, this moment of insight, this boy is seven at this time, I think. He's eight now. And he says, sorry you had a bad daddy, daddy, but you're a good daddy to me. And, um, you know, it's because of Kevin Costner. And I made it through that without crying. That's good. Um, but wonderful. Made me moment. cry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little misty myself. Uh, but that, that is a moment in cinema that just really just moved and transcended me um, in crazy ways. Dear listener, we'd love to hear your favorite cinematic dads. And uh, you can do that through those means of social media that we've already discussed. But let's move on and conclude the show as we always do with what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. I can teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. I can tell you how to bottle fame, brew glory, and even put a stopper in death. Just a minute. Robin Hood steals money from my pocket 
forcing me to hurt the public. And they love me for it. Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture. This is John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. Just for one day. There go my heroes, dear listener. It's been a rough week in popular culture as we lost both David Bowie and uh, one Alan Rickman, whose performances um, and uh, the music of David Bowie are influential and uh, moving to us all. Uh, we know the secret, Severus, and we are so glad that you were so faithful, even though sometimes we didn't entirely understand. Uh, you're a beautiful person, and uh, we all miss you. Um Ground control, um, Colin David Bowie. We know where you are. We know what you're doing. And uh, you know what? Um, Ziggy played guitar, and I know you're playing it now. And uh, we are just so... We, we want to send our well wishes to all the family and uh, loved ones, and uh, we just want to say thank you to both of you for um, how you taught us how to be better humans, even though at times you would... Um, I think this is accurate for both of them. They would queer the role. Um, and what I mean by that is they would trouble it with uh, ambiguity and with frailty and uh, with pure humanness. And uh, these two uh, performers and entertainers moved and transcended us all. And uh, thank you so much for what you've done. There was a great tweet I saw this week. And um, it, it uh, just pointed out that uh, Hans Gruber was Alan Rickman's first role in a movie ever. That was I. I think you retweeted. I, re- it, I retweeted David Chin of Slash Film Fame. That's what it was. That br- it, it, it stated yeah. it perfectly. Yeah, it stated it perfectly. That was his first movie role. That would be like Michelangelo's first painting being the Sistine Chapel. Yep. Like that's the movie villain. I mean, it's astonishing. He's a, a a wonderfully talented actor who I don't think ever had the career he should have had because he was amazing. He's irreplaceable. Uh, we're never gonna. There is no other actor out there who can fill that. That can can be anything like Alan Rickman, and I don't think we're gonna have anyone like him. Much like our generation, we will never have. The, the Earth has seen the coolest person it will ever see. Um, th- there will never be anyone as cool as David Bowie ever again. What a legend! God the man damn, dropped know, his dude. final album two days before his death, meaning none of us heard it until he was already gone. I mean. God, it's so beautiful. God, the first time I ever openly like bald in a movie was whenever that last scene in Harry Potter Seven. Whenever Snape, the always seat, and um, I feel pretty ridiculous for crying so much about people I scarcely know. Um, in that whose careers I didn't really appreciate in in a way that should be appreciated, but. Both of these uh, men, they will be missed by so many people, and uh, their legacy will really last a lifetime and beyond. 
So thanks again to two men who not only were phenomenal artists in their respective fields, um, but also were advocates for those who could not um, advocate for themselves. Uh, Rickman did so much work for feminism. Uh, David Bowie did so much work for race. If you haven't seen his um, excoriation of an MTV VJ about the lack of play of black artists on MTV at the time, uh, you're really, really missing something. And these guys are brilliant in every sense of the world. And the world is less and poorer, having lost them both. Well, we're going to move on around the table, though, and try to uh, up the uh, energy here and the ante a little bit and talk a little bit about what else has got us fired up this week in pop culture. I'm going to go to Caleb Masters first. Caleb, are you fired up this week? I'm going to start on the downer first because I'm very excited about something, but it's something that, especially coming off of the, the tribute to Alan Rickman uh, and David Bowie, both who passed of cancer. Um, it's kind of a weird thing to be fired up about, but uh, there was an indie game called That Dragon Cancer that just launched this week that I'm uh, playing through for an upcoming project. Uh, about uh, a father who is, it's it's like one of those uh, point and click adventures. Yeah, I've I've, I've and, seen a little bit about it. it. Seems it looks really interesting. Yeah, and, and basically the well the, the guy who built the game mm-hmm. he act his dad actually died of cancer and they, they he actually he uses actual sound bites from like recorded messages he got from his doctor in the game mm-hmm. and and the idea is that he would. Um, two things. One, be able to make an, uh, an art that other people who have been through similar circumstances could know that they're not alone mm-hmm. because this is not something you just talk about with people. Um, and secondly, he wanted to try and help people who haven't had that experience understand in a, in a sort of way what is it like to, to go through the process of grieving um, someone who's not dead yet. And uh, really powerful stuff. I got to talk to um, uh, one of the develop- lead developers on the team at PAX Prime back in August, and I've got doing some work for our project, and so I'm super excited about that. Although it's a real, it's a real downer. Uh, I want to point out something else in the world of cancer and cancer research that does have me fired up this week. Um, I don't know how many of you watched the State of the Union, but um, there's a great ripoff from The West Wing uh, that happened in which uh, President Obama said, "We are, we, we are going to." say that this is the goal. We don't know how we're going to get there, just like John Kennedy said that we're going to get to the moon in 1960, and we're going to cure cancer. And uh, I, I can't say that that message it could be any more timely right now, and I am all kinds of fired up about that. I just wanted to tag that on uh, with what you're saying right there, Caleb. Go ahead and continue, though. Well, on a more optimistic note, mostly more optimistic, uh, the Oscar nominations came out this last week. Uh, Arthur and I did a we did a kind of a quick reactions piece on our episode of Back to the Movies uh, this last week. But um, I'm I've mixed feelings about it. On one hand, I'm really excited to see genre being more uh, well recognized uh, by the Academy with Mad Max getting ten, an unprecedented ten nominations, ten. For Mad Max, like that never. I mean, I did, I was shocked. I thought we might yeah. get three or four. Um, so that's really exciting. I'm really excited to see The Big Short getting a lot of love. I'm really excited to see, uh, you know, I mean, Room, which I just saw, uh, getting some love. I mean, it's a. I think this is a. The, this year, the the nominees are not what would typically be uh, Best Picture nominees or nominee type thing. There's a uh, the original script category. I go go look. There's like five movies that you would never in a million years include in the same conversation types of movies you're comparing. And then uh, uh, on the progressive end, uh, five of the eight movies uh, in Best Picture uh, beat, passed the Bechdel test, which is unprecedented. Uh, previously, last year, there was only two that had passed that. So uh, for women, this was a really good year for, for women, in, in, at least in the Academy and in Hollywood. Well, and even films that aren't getting recognition at the, uh, at the Oscars. <clears throat> there, there was a, 2015 was a, a really solid and progressive year uh, in terms of the depiction of gender in film. Um, I'll, 
by a lot. Yeah. Uh, but again, on the other end of the spectrum, which I, I suspect you're about to mention, Caleb, um, not not so good uh, in other in other ways. Not, not in race, where nope. the uh, only films that got nominated with. <laughs> Okay, so Creed, a predominantly black film written and directed by a black director, the only person who got nominated for anything was the Sylvester Stallone, who was a white guy. And he's great in the movie, don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah, that's not to take anything away he's from great. Stallone. Yeah, I don't want to take it away from him, but like, it's really weird that that didn't get... I, I mean, I, I would have. there's 10 slots in that Best Picture nomination category, or straight out of Compton. Yeah. Straight out of Compton. Oh my gosh, that movie deserves... That's an important movie this last year, and I am shocked it got overlooked. And the only thing it got nominated for was the screenplay, which was written by two white guys. So it's just really bizarre. You're like, really, guys? Um, or And then Idris Elba got the snub from... Well, Beast of No Nation got shut out entirely. But Idris Elba or Abraham Atta, you know, the, the, the actors in the, both of those performances were incredible. Uh, that's political, though. That has more to do with distribution. Than yeah, that's well, that's, that's, I, I that's the conversation there. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, the Creed shutout uh, for Ryan Coogler and Michael B. Jordan um, uh, is infuriating. Um, but the Beast of No Nation thing, I mean, yeah, that has more to do with the MPAA and the motion, uh, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences have their hands in each other's pockets, and um, Netflix really pissed off the MPAA. So well, I think that's what that's about. Well, it's strange because the Academy, which also does television, is all mm-hmm. about has been has been I mean at least the last two or three years has been a little gung ho about uh, streaming uh, TV shows make, getting nominations so anyway either way I think it's not necessarily when it comes to race it's not the, the best year for the Academy capturing the types of films that came out this last year excellent thank you very much Mr Caleb Masters Ms Alexander Bohannon are you fired up this week I'm just fired up about one thing um, I was able to catch um, a bunch of really artsy movies this week thanks to uh, my pals at Good Trash Media uh, went to see Quay Brothers at the Museum of Art um, with a lot of these guys and then I saw a Mustang on Friday as well um, and then I think there's one more. Oh, and then I saw Blade Runner in theaters this week as well, which uh, the final cut, the only cut, you mean. Um, and that was fantastic. But the film I actually really want to talk about and mention for sure is the fact that I saw the the Fantastic Four, the 1994 much, much bemoaned, never released uh, film to keep the rights of uh, the characters. Um, and that movie is a campy, delightful good time. Um, and I was really happy to finally catch that after only hearing things about it and it was one of those like I gotta see this and and, uh, and I did and I'm very glad that I did I would encourage you to find it too <laughs> I recall I recall quite vividly seeing a trailer for this when they thought maybe they had something and then they realized they didn't and never a word was spoken I mean it, I didn't get into cinema deeply until five or six years later and uh, then I, that was just not something I was seeking out at the time and so it was absolutely buried it's just the strangest sort of event in cinema so thank you for mentioning that alex it's it is a rare gem and definitely worth checking out mr dalton stewart are you fired up this week no not really um other than all the sad stuff we've already talked about mostly just been playing a lot of fallout 4 um i guess shortly before we recorded uh i mean really that's basically all i've been doing i went and saw force awakens again still like it uh watched um sin city a dame to kill for not good not good Mostly just been playing a lot of video games this week, man. Alrighty, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am also fired up. Um, I also caught the Quay film, uh, which included four shorts from the Quay brothers, as well as Christopher Nolan's documentary shot in and also projected in beautiful 35mm film. It was wonderful and weird and strange and haunting 
and all of those sort of things. So I love that very, very much. I thought it was fantastic. I'm also kind of excited about something that's going on at the Good Trash Media site. This is very personal, but you can share in it, dear listener, is I've begun a three-part series. I think it's only going to be three, not four-part series about auteurism and what's going on with that right now in contemporary society and criticism and thought. And so I do encourage you to check that out. That should be dropping sometime this week as well. So do check that out. And finally, in regards to the passing of uh, Mr. Rickman and Mr. Bowie, uh, this has fired me up in the way that celebrities can inspire. And we've already mentioned that Die Hard was Alan Rickman's first film. Alan Rickman was 47 years old when he got his first acting role. Well, it was for a screen acting role. Yeah. He'd been a stage actor. He'd been a stage actor, but, but we became a movie star. It was at 47, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, older than the typical um, beginning dates for those kinds of things. And then I saw the moment of Zen on The Daily Show about um, David Bowie, in which he gives this quick little speech where he says, you know, when it comes to really doing something in your life and you're in the water, what you've got to do is you've got to get where you're just deep enough that you can't quite touch. And at that moment, you might just do something interesting. And as a person who's sort of late in life making career changes and shifts and changes and transformations, um, I am inspired by these men to uh, be all that I can be and to get in that deep water and try some new things. So thank you again, gentlemen. Um, You have inspired us all. Uh, dear listener, we thank you for listening to the show and uh, being part of our conversation. We'll let you know that next week we're going to be taking a look at uh, the film Tangerine, uh, 2015 release uh, in our anti-trash marathon. It is going to be very, very interesting. has very little to do with fruit. And, and uh, because it's uh, widely regarded as one of the best films of 2015, if you ask uh, people that aren't the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, correct? Uh, <laughs> we will uh, that week, uh, next week, we will also be sharing our uh, top five films of 2015. Yes, we will indeed. And so that is going to be exciting. So you want to tune in for that. But in the meantime, take a look at a movie and have a conversation with somebody you love. Because what we find is that watching movies can be so much more than just 90 minutes wasted in a bucket of popcorn. It's about the conversation that makes it all worthwhile. And until next week, guys, we'll see you next time. The Good Trash Genre Cast is produced and edited by Arthur Gordon. Direction by Dustin Sells. Social media by Alexandro Bohannon, Caleb Masters, and Dalton Stewart. Our intro and outro is Night Call by Kavinsky and Lovebox. We are also proud to feature music from Deer Tick this week on the program. For more information on this episode of the Good Trash Genrecast, as well as the rest of the Good Trash Media family, please visit goodtrashmedia.com.